Christ is Lord. Christ is King. Nothing is excluded from His reign. Nothing is excluded, left out from His rule. And nothing is rightly understood or comprehended or discussed when you leave Jesus out of the equation. Nothing at all. That then begs a question. A thoughtful reflection is, is demanded there when you understand, you get a, begin to get a handle on, on that reality. And that is, what areas of my life might be excluded from his rule? Now, by that, you can't mean because he is actually king, there's anything that is actually outside or beyond his sight or his reach. But rather, what are those areas that I'm living as though? or outside of his reach or beyond his sight and, and hiding from him. Um, is ignoring him, I guess you could say. And it may be a, a way we could get at that question is simply this, this thought experiment. What are the things for me that dominate my attention, that demand much of my energy, and frankly, have a profound shaping effect upon all my relationships. That might help me get at the question, what are the areas of my life that need to be examined where I'm ignoring Christ as King? And one area that I fear goes often with, with little reflection whatsoever is work. And what it means for us to work uh, and so I want to talk about this Labor Day weekend, so it seems like a, a reasonable time just to, to mention this and to think about this for just a little bit. Uh, so, so whether or not you're a student or a stay-at-home mom or a Special Forces team member or whether you are retired or actively employed or whatever your status may be in life, we need to think about what does this mean? What does this mean to work, and what does the Bible have to say about it? Now, you can see in your outline, you know, I've said it's various texts that we're looking at here this morning, and that's true. That's a little different than normal. Normally, if you've been a part of uh, Christ Pres any time at all, you, you know that usually what's going on at this point in the service is I'm standing up and moving us through a study of a particular book, and that's, by the way, to protect you from my hobby horses, to give you God's perspective on life and not mine, because you don't want mine, you want His. And, but in this case, we're really looking at, at a breadth of text on a, one particular issue. And, and I'm going to do something even more unusual by reading just one of those texts and not really expounding on it. Um, so it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you want to read that with me just as I'm, we're beginning uh, this time here this morning. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, this is uh, after a whole stretch of in the New Testament canon uh, that you have there of Paul's Letters just before, it's in a stretch of T's, I'll put it that way. You have First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, then Titus. So if you can find the C of T's, go to the first, uh, the early part of all that, and you'll have found First Thessalonians. And I want to look at chapter 4, just really read chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, just to begin our time together, brief time together looking at this. Now, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent 
on no one. Well, would you uh, bow your heads in prayer? Uh, Father, thank you. Um, as the psalm says, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we need that uh, more than we know. We dare not assume that this thing that is so much a part of our everyday lives, we know so much about and are so wise on. We, in all areas of life, we need to yield to what the Scriptures say, and no area of life we dare leave unexamined. So this, especially, that, that, that takes over, that dominates so much of our attention and energy, we ask that you would help us have your mind And uh, just for these few minutes, very, very, very few minutes, as we're addressing this topic, we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's Labor Day, uh, so what does that mean, Labor Day weekend? That Usually, that that means it's the, I hate to tell you this, it's nearly the end of summer, though the air doesn't really feel like it, but but is pretty much on us. Um, That that means, you know, maybe some cookouts for a few, sporting events uh, as, as well. Uh, we can we can mark it uh, in in that way. The history you may know this of of Labor Day is it was originally meant um, it was it was as a tribute to the American worker in the context of the labor movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I think it was 1894. The uh, federal government instituted it as a federal holiday. Uh, so there you go. There's your history. I'll do the benediction. No. Um, Psalm 24 verse. One is, uh, I think, something for us to consider here, thinking about this. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. You know what that means? It means that uh, the great failure of our age, one among many, perhaps the chief one, is a failure to stop and think. A failure to stop and reflect on what we're doing and where we're going. And the failure not just of this age, but of every age, is to live your life in a way that runs counter, that runs against the grain of God's ways, His commands, His statutes. I have a simple point I want to make. And I've alluded to it already. And it's just this. The gospel speaks to all of life. The gospel speaks to all of life, including our work. With that in mind, we need to hear what it has to say. That's my very, very simple point. What does it say? What does it indeed say? Three things. At least these three things. First, work is good. That's true. Secondly, work is bad. That's true. Thirdly, there are things that we need to learn in terms of how to work with those two tension points in mind. First then, work is good. Genesis 1. Start at the beginning. Where else do you, should we begin? Could we begin? Genesis chapter 1. I won't even tell you how to find that. If you can't find that, we need to talk. Uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 
through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then skipping down to chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. What do we see here? Some fundamental things. First, that we are commanded to work. This is the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. Uh, it, is, it is absolutely essential to what it is to be a human being. It's fundamental to our nature is to, to work. And we see this from the beginning, by the way. Did you know Genesis 1 and 2 comes before Genesis 3? Work is not a part or product of the fall. The call to work is there from the very Beginning, We are commanded to work, you see, because we were created to work. God Himself, all through the Scriptures, all these fantastic metaphors, fancy word, anthropomorphisms are used to describe what God is like. For instance, He is a, described as a gardener and a shepherd, a potter, a physician, a teacher a vine dresser, a metal worker, which you know gives a lot of, lends a lot of dignity to all those callings and anything that would be remotely like them. Unlike, completely counter to the myths of the ancient world, God, the true and true living God, the Lord God, is a, described as one who is at work, who's not just up in heaven with his feet propped up on the clouds. He is incessantly working, working in creation, Working in providence, upholding and supplying all of his, create, his created works and, and in salvation. This is a God who works. And we, now think with me, are described as being made in his image according to his likeness. We are made in the image according to the likeness of a God who works. You know what that means? A fundamental part of being human is to work. Is to work. It is basic. So the first thing you have to say about what does the Bible say about work is that it is fundamentally good. Bottom line, it is fundamentally good. So, why should we work? Whatever sphere that is, I alluded to some a few minutes ago, why should we work? Or put it another way, what gives our work value? There's a long quote by Jerem Bars there in your quotes and notes. I'm just going to sum it up. What gives our work value? It is not so that you can give money to the church, though you should, but that's not what gives your work value. It is not so that then you can possibly have a mission field during the week to go out there and tell people about Jesus, although maybe you should, but that's not what gives your work value. It is not so that then you can get on to the bigger and better things of the work of the kingdom. That's not it either. Do you know why you should work? Do you know what gives your work value? Because you're created to. And God values it. 
I'm going to say that again, because I know it's kind of a radical, crazy idea, especially in the church. What gives your work value, whether you're changing diapers, or changing tires, or whatever it may be, what gives your work value is the fact that you were created, you were made to work, and God values it. Do you see how the gospel, it does indeed speak to all of life, including our work and how it upholds it and dignifies it? Now that's, that's not the only thing the Bible says about work. There's a second thing, and that is work is good and work is bad. Keep reading. Let's move on to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, this is in the midst of the account of the fall. Yes, an event that took place in time and in space. There was an Adam, there was an Eve, there was a fall with historical repercussions in time and space. Uh, this is after uh, the cosmic betrayal, rebellion. This is in the midst of the curses that the Lord is pronouncing, first upon Satan and now picking up from there upon the woman and then the man. In verse 15, excuse me, I'll say verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Why is work bad? Because of the fall. And the fall, as an historical event, brought a futility to work, a loss of dominion over the created order. Now, instead of just being fruit, there's thorns, thistles, and death. Hardship is brought to work. Toil is brought to work. Futility is brought to work. Frustration is brought to work. And not just that, I would say a dehumanizing is brought to work, where, where um, a lack of fulfillment, where it was meant to be fulfilling, sometimes it's so lack of fulfillment we experience something there, a loss of the realization of the flourishing of our gifts and our potential. We see that there as well. Why? Because of the fall, the futility of work, but not just that, the idolatry of work. The fall brings an idolatry to work as well. What do we so often trust in? What are we so often counting on? Our work and the paycheck. Or in an agrarian community, they're the fruit of our work and not the one who provided it. And not the one who's behind it all. Not the creator, not the God of all things himself. What we trust in, what we, we look to, uh, our work to give us the comfort and the ease, and the security, and the control, and the standing, and affirmation our hearts crave, we look to our work for those things instead of the true living God. And that is idolatry. That is idolatry. We also, it's, it's perhaps another manifestation of that is we, we, it's work is what we trust, and work becomes who we are. We let work define us. We let our work become part of our identity. We, we get confused 
the, the, what we do with who we are. They get all jumbled up. I mean, how do we usually introduce ourselves, right? In a new setting? What do you do? What do you do as though that's the person? And, as, and then we answer the question as though that's what we are. We get very confused uh, about it. And I think there's something else to add to this as well. When whatever that job is that you have, and that we see this oftentimes in, t- in two ways, when people retire and then they empty nest. You've lost that thing that was your identity and now you're just lost because you don't know who you are anymore. And it's painful because it was what you were and it's been taken away. So there's this tension you see in what the Scriptures tell us about work. On the one hand, it is fundamentally good, but on the other hand, it is fundamentally flawed. There's a great scene in uh, Chariots of Fire, old, old movie. Um, not that old, it's color. It's not like it was you know, put up on a cave wall. But uh, uh, Harold Abrams is this uh, fantastically gifted 100-meter sprinter. And there is this scene there in the training room. He's getting this rub down and he's talking to a friend before a race. And this is what he says. And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. He wins the race, but there's no joy whatsoever for him in it. No sense of achievement. Because to have your identity wrapped up in your work robs you of all joy. It cripples you. Now, how, how do we do this? None of us are 100-meter sprinters as far as I know. Um, the futility, the idolatry of work, how does that play itself out for us? We, we, we lose balance. We go to extremes. We get off kilter. We'll either go to this side, we'll say, well, work is everything, and so we live for it, and everything else, I'll just use this phrase, not lightly, everything else be damned. Or work is nothing and has no place really, no dignified place whatsoever in our minds and in our sight. And so we we do what? We live for the weekend. Both of those approaches are fundamentally flawed. Completely wrong. Failing to grapple with what the Bible actually teaches us about work and its proper understanding. Well, okay, then finally I've this third point in these, I'll just call them, for lack of a better way of putting it, four pillars, four ways of thinking about, four ways of going about. What, what do we do? How do we live in this tension between the goodness and badness of, of, of work? These four things. First, with hope in view. With hope in view. Paul, Paul writes these wonderful words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after reflecting on the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus, and he says, now based on that, this is what you need to know. This is how you need to live, among other things. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, therefore, so, you know, therefore, based on everything I've just told you about the reality of Jesus' rising from the dead and yours coming too, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There is purpose 
and value in all that the Christian sets his hand to do, no matter what it is. No matter what it is. So we work with hope in view, but not just right now in that sense, but also with the assurance that one day this curse is going to be reversed. It's going to be lifted. Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it a sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. And their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. We are to work with hope in view. To work with hope in view. And because of that, that then impels us and frees us to also then work with integrity. And the Scriptures speak to this as well. Micah uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. The prophet Micah says these stirring words. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What does that mean? It means just and honest dealings. Deceit and buying and selling ruled out. Fair wages to be paid out. It means just and honest dealings. It means diligent labor. Laziness is condemned. Stealing goods or time from your employer is wrong. We are to work with hope in view and to work with integrity as well. To also work in the context of relationship with other people. And Tom alluded to this last week. That we are to work recognizing our, seeing ourselves as servants honoring uh, and respecting those around us. First, those who are over us, yes, even when they don't deserve it, but also those below us, giving them the honor and dignity they deserve as well, never lording that God-given authority we've been given over them. So we, we, we work, we labor with hope in view, with integrity in the context of rela in relationship. And lastly this, quorum deo. That's an old Latin phrase that means something along these lines. In the presence of God. All our work done in the presence of God. Meaning, under, to, from, for, him. Under, to, from, for, him. All our work. Implication, application. There is no dichotomy, there is no line to be drawn between the secular things of life 
and this, what we deem to be the sacred things of life. You know why there's no line to be drawn? Because there is no line. Christ is king over all things. Over all things. Now that, that is, was completely counter to the thinking of the, the first century Greco-Roman world that in fact did draw a line between those things. In much of the New Testament, you see something of, of that, that pushback on that mentality. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul says, work with your hands. Oh my goodness, are you kidding? Because there was this idea of, this, uh, of a division of labor between the mental and the, the, man, the manual, or we would say the white collar and the, the blue collar. This, this division of labor, and sadly, I think... Not, that's not just in the first century, but in the 21st century, and not just out there, but in here. Sadly, within the ranks of the church, there's sometimes, I, would, I fear, a, not just a division, but a hierarchy of labor. Oh, well, that's spiritual stuff. He or she gets to do spiritual stuff, but I, I have to do this stuff on Monday. Friends, that is just wrong. That is not the biblical vision at all. At all. That's a lie. Christ is king, ruling, reigning over all of life. I'll just end with this quote uh, from Martin Luther. The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. See, the gospel frees and impels us to these things. To work with hope, to work with integrity, to work in relationship, and quorum Deo. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these few minutes, maybe too few, to reflect on this huge topic. But oh, we pray that you would give us your mind to rattle our preconceived, um, unbiblical ideas as to what it is to work. Uh, this wonderful, holy calling that every image bearer under the sun has, all of us, all of us. Um, as stewards, as your servants. And uh, we pray that you would encourage our hearts and help us to see these things a bit more clearly. In your name we pray. Amen.